78 Man here again with another podcast, and it's the second part of The Sounds of Time, a documentary album from 1949, a dramatisation of sound told by the voices that made history. In the last podcast we played sides 1 to 5, so we're carrying on with side 6, which features 8th Army's Artillery Barrage Opens the Battle of El Alamein, From Britain, General Ike Eisenhower announces the D-Day invasion of France, June 6, 1944. Actuality recording by Stanley Maxted, made under fire with the Airborne Division at Arnhem. Joyous Paris crowds greet the Army of Liberation. Britain's final ordeal by pilotless planes and rockets. Crossing the Rhine in a buffalo in pursuit of the Wehrmacht. A liberated victim of a Nazi concentration camp meets his mother. Within two months, Montgomery's army is struck. The sounds you are listening to now are the sounds of the 8th Army's artillery barrage blasting open at Alamein, a triumphant road that led on to Tripoli and Rome. Then came that great day for which an enslaved continent had waited and prayed. For months, the quiet lanes and ports of southern England had absorbed a vast concentration of men and weapons. Behind locked doors in London, service commanders and scientists had planned and replanned the greatest amphibious invasion in military history. When all was ready, the quiet voice of Ike Eisenhower heralded D-Day 1944. People of Western Europe, A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe. In Nazi-occupied Paris, patriots heard that voice and were to remember it three months later when the capital greeted its liberators. But at Alamein, Rome, Paris, Brussels are milestones. Between them, men died, whole towns and villages were wiped out, and new epics were written into the annals of military fame. At Arnhem, for eight days, the 1st Airborne Division clung desperately to a bridgehead ringed and pulverized by Nazi guns, mortars, and bombs. If you want to know what hell sounds like, listen to this recording made at Arnhem itself by one of the men who came back, BBC correspondent Stanley Maxted. You can hear the kind of flight that those planes are flying through. It's it's absolutely like, like hail up there. These these enemy guns all around us are just simply hammering at those planes. But so far, I haven't seen anything. I've seen any of them hit. But the bundles are coming down. The parachutes are coming down. That's all that these men ask. 
in London, the last robot plane had dipped its warhead and dived from the sky. One final trick was to be pulled out of the bag of perverted Nazi science before the British people knew the peace of friendly skies. The V-2, outstripping sound in its lightning plunge from the stratosphere. But now the Allied armies were chasing the shattered Wehrmacht across the Rhine. We're in. The buffalo dips its nose down the bank. And now it's opening up full power. Three minutes to go and we are racing across. And side by side with us go racing the other buffaloes. Racing for that hell on the other side. The searchlights cast a white beam now right across the river on one side of us. But ahead of us is only red water. The current's carrying us down and we're putting up our nose against it, going clean across it all the time. And the tracer's making a path on either side of us, beating down the opposition. Deep into Nazi Germany plunged the racing columns of mechanized armies. And as they advanced, they tore aside veils that had shielded the worst of Hitler's infamies from outside eyes. A wave of horror swept across the civilized world when the armies of liberation reached the gates of Belsen, Auschwitz, Dachau. Out of the nightmare of those charnel houses, the living shells of decent men tottered into the arms of wives and mothers. And humanity bowed its head in shame. Side 7, We Shall Remember Them, features victory celebration in Whitehall on VE Day. Winston Churchill greets the singing crowds. General Ike Eisenhower becomes a freeman of the City of London and addresses fellow citizens from the Mansion House steps. Memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral to Franklin D. Roosevelt, April 17, 1945, and the great bells of St Paul's ring out a tribute to Britain's staunch friend. At 2.41am on May the 7th, 1945, the land, sea and air forces of Nazi Germany surrendered unconditionally to the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe. In Germany, Hitler's new order that was to last 1,000 years had gone the way of all tyrannies, and the brain that conceived it rotted amongst the ashes of the Berlin Chancellor. In Italy, the tragic comic figure of Mussolini dangled by the heels from a lamppost as grotesque in death as he had been in life. In Europe, democracy's long and bitter death struggle had been rewarded with victory, and as Winston Churchill told the milling joyous crowd in Whitehall that day, Later, the warrior leader came out in his blue siren suit 
onto a balcony in Whitehall to conduct the vast crowd in the singing of Land of Hope and Glory. Nor did London forget the military leaders who had planned and executed their deliverance. On June the 12th, General Eisenhower, now a freeman of the City of London, spoke to his fellow citizens from the balcony of the Lord Mayor's residence. Whether or not you know it, I am now a Londoner myself. I've got just as much right to be down in that crowd yelling as you have. The great difference that I see in this city and when I came three years ago is right here. We can now have crowds. There can be happy gatherings. You don't have to listen for a motor in the sky and wonder whether there's a pilot in the blankety-blank thing or not. But there was one great leader who could not receive the salute of the free peoples on VE Day. The man whose belief in Britain, when she stood alone, shone out like a beacon of hope throughout the dark days. The man who, while London gasped and burned under Hitler's blitz, sent a testament of faith to Winston Churchill. Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. In St. Paul's Cathedral on April the 17th, 1945, a nation paid tribute to the memory of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And now the procession has reached the west door and the great congregation itself begins to file out and from the belfry above the muffled peals of bells rings out over the city of London, the London that knows its debt to the man it mourns today. Those peals will be echoed this morning from belfries throughout the land and all will be sounding like these bells of St. Paul's Cathedral in a nationwide tribute, and above all, for those who hear them, in warm and affectionate memory of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States of America. Side 8, The Reckoning, features Clement Attlee, Britain's new Prime Minister, announces the Japanese surrender and the end of the war, general election exchanges between Churchill and Attlee over the BBC, trials of Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg, Hermann Göring and Rudolf Hess enter pleas of not guilty, the Nuremberg judgment is pronounced, eyewitness Sergeant Major E. Austin reports Heinrich Himmler's suicide, William Lord Haw Joyce, 
Propaganda puppet of Goebbels is sentenced to death in London. When at midnight on August the 14th, 15th, 1945, Britain's Prime Minister came to the microphone to announce the surrender of Japan, the voice we heard was the voice not of Winston Churchill, but of Clement Attlee. Yesterday, the Japanese, the last of our enemies, whose ambitions plunged the world into so much bloodshed and misery, signed the terms of surrender in Tokyo. Without waiting for total victory, the British people had started a new political chapter in the island's history. From the war cabinet, Winston Churchill had turned to the hustings of a general election to conduct a lively and hard-hitting campaign. Socialism is in its essence an attack not only upon British enterprise, but upon the right of an ordinary man or woman to breathe freely without having a harsh, clumsy, tyrannical hand clapped across their mouths and nostrils. Socialist leader Clement Attlee, Churchill's right hand during the war, gave his answer from the left. We need a planned location of industry to give a balance to the country and to preserve social capital. We must have no more distressed areas. No one of these things can be effected without giving power to the government. The Prime Minister made much play last night with the rights of the individual and the danger of people being ordered about by officials. I entirely agree that people should have the greatest freedom compatible with the freedom of others. But there was a time when employers were free to work little children 16 hours a day. When the ballots were counted, a revolution, peaceful but profound, had been ushered in. Five months later, in Nuremberg, the leaders of another kind of revolution were arraigned before the bar of world justice to answer for their crimes against humanity. Hermann Goering was the first to plead not guilty. Before I the Frage des Gerichtshofes beantworte, ob ich mich schuldig oder nicht schuldig bekenne. You must plead guilty or not guilty. Bekenne mich im Sinne der Anklage nicht schuldig. Rudolf Hess. Nein. That will be entered as a plea of not guilty. For a year, the trial moved along its ponderous legalistic course. Then came the judgment. Defendant Hermann Wilhelm Goering, on the counts of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the International Military Tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. Defendant Rudolf Hess. And on through a list of names that once spelt power and terror in Europe. Keitel, Rosenberg, Frank, Funk, Streicher. One name, the most hated of them all, was not on that list. A mild-looking schoolmaster, Heinrich Himmler, creator of the dreaded Gestapo, cheated justice with a file of cyanide. A British sergeant major saw him die. After a struggle uh, lasting a quarter of an hour in which we tried all methods of artificial respiration under the direction of the doctor, he died. And when he died, we threw a blanket over him and left him. While the free world was squaring its account with the war criminals at Nuremberg, Britain dealt with a traitor whose sardonic voice had taunted her when she stood alone. Germany calling. Germany calling. 
We are continuing our news in English. William Joyce, radio puppet of Propaganda Minister Goebbels, was brought back to a city that his Nazi masters had condemned to death. And with the final rejection of his appeal against the death sentence, Lord Haw-Haw's voice became a sordid memory. Germany calling, Germany calling, Germany calling. At last, Britain had answered. Side 9, Tapestry of Empire, features Britain's royal family towards the Union of South Africa and the Rhodesias. King George VI speaks of his anxiety about Britain's economic plight. Princess Elizabeth comes of age, her solemn dedication to the service of the Empire. Jawaharlal Nehru on transfer of power to India. Swearing in of Lord Louis Mountbatten as first Governor General of India and the Archbishop of Canterbury conducts a royal wedding of Princess Elizabeth and Duke of Edinburgh in Westminster Abbey. Now an empire that had shared the sacrifice of war turned to cultivate the fruits of peace. And to the Union of South Africa and the Rhodesias came the British royal family, personifying the intimate relationship that linked a far-flung commonwealth with the mother country. It was a happy tour, radiating friendship, kinship and song. And overshadowed, as King George VI himself put it in a speech at Pretoria, only by the grave industrial crisis that was then paralyzing the mother country. And the only unhappy memory that I shall have of them will be due to my constant anxiety about the cruel ordeal which the people of Great Britain have undergone since I left them at the end of January. During this tour, Princess Elizabeth, heir to the throne, came of age and broadcast this solemn dedication to the Commonwealth. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. The family was growing up. Three of its members, India, Burma and Ceylon, now grown to adulthood, were restless for independence. And with a mingled pride and regret of the eternal parent, Britain handed them the key of the door. On June the 3rd, 1947, a great Indian leader and patriot, Jawaharlal Nehru, broadcast his acceptance of the British government's formula for the transfer of power. We are little men serving great causes, but because the cause is great, Something of that greatness falls upon us also. Mighty forces are at work in the world today and in India. And I have no doubt that we are ushering in a period of greatness for India. And two months later, the last Viceroy of the British Raj, Lord Mountbatten, was ceremonially sworn in at New Delhi as the first Governor-General of a self-governing Indian Dominion. I, the... Francis Albert Victor Nicholas Viscount Mountbatten of Burma, Viscount Mountbatten of Burma do, swear do swear that, that I will will and truly serve His Majesty King George VI, King George VI his, heirs his heirs and successors 
in the office of Governor General of India. As the year drew to a close, India's new Governor General flew to take his part in the pageantry of a royal romance that thrilled Britain and the world. A young princess stood beside her sailor bridegroom in Westminster Abbey while the Archbishop of Canterbury joined them in marriage. For as much as Philip and Elizabeth Alexandra Mary have consented together in holy wedlock and have witnessed the same before God and this company and thereto have given and pledged their troth either to other and have declared the same by giving and receiving of a ring and by joining of hands I pronounce that they be man and wife together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. to the final side now, side 10, Men Can Sing Together. The Duke of Edinburgh addresses Mansion House audience on return from Paris. Dr. Jane Wiseman speaks with pride of the new state of Israel. A remedy for sick and infected Europe is prescribed by US Secretary of State George Marshall at Harvard University. The airlift over the Soviet blockade of Berlin. Ernest Bevin at Washington on the meaning of the North Atlantic Pact and Olympic hymn sung by massed choirs at Olympic Games, London, 1948. It was spring, and the war was a three-year-old memory when the Duke of Edinburgh took his bride and future queen on an official visit to Paris. They won the city's heart, and as the Duke of Edinburgh told a Mansion House audience on his return to London, Wherever we went, we were given an extremely cordial and kindly reception. Part of that welcome may have been for us personally, at any rate, we like to think so. But we are both convinced that the crowds who greeted us were expressing through us their friendship for our countrymen. But to Paris, London and Lake Success that year came visitors of another kind, intractable men from the Kremlin, dedicated, it seemed, to the perpetuation of ill faith between the nations. Patiently, democracy's representatives at UNO had labored to build a new peace out of the ruins of World War II to pool the world's resources for the massive tasks of reconstruction. Under its auspices, the Jewish people had won back a national home in Palestine after 2,000 years of exile. On May the 23rd, 1948, Dr. Weizmann, president of the new State of Israel, spoke with pride of its new beginnings. We have built up several institutions of uh, high culture in Jerusalem. They have a university, they have a great hospital, they have a great nurses, but over it all, reducing debate to a farce, hung a new weapon, the veto. While you now drifted from deadlock to stalemate, the pulse of European economy beat ever fainter, and the red tide of communism spread through the Balkans and westwards to lap menacingly against the tidal wall of social democracy. Europe was sick and infected. 
At Harvard University in June 1947, Secretary of State George Marshall had prescribed the remedy. The truth of the matter is that Europe's requirements for the next three or four years of foreign foods and other essential products, principally from America, are so much greater than her present ability to pay that she must have substantial additional help or face economic, social, and political deterioration of a very grave character. The Marshall Plan. America's answer to the challenge facing the free world was conceived at Harvard that day. Martial aid sped the wheels of Europe's productive machinery, and it did something else. It gave the Western nations, for the first time in history, common tasks to work for and common interests to defend. The first major test of the Western powers came on June the 28th, 1948, when the Soviet Union clamped her blockade on Berlin. For 318 days and nights, a never-ending supply of food, fuel, and other essentials was flown over the blockade and into Berlin. 190,000 individual flights by British and American planes brought more than one and a half million tons to the capital's isolated western zone. European confidence in the might of the democracies was restored. And then, a year after the inception of martial aid, came a new comradeship in defense, the North Atlantic Pact, signed by 12 free nations of the Western world. In Washington, Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan spoke for Britain. At last, democracy is no longer a series of isolated units. It has become a cohesive organism determined to fulfill its great purpose. Is the pact a new milestone in humanity's arduous trek towards sanity and peace? Or is it just another fortress against a new dragon of war. The sounds of time will answer. Men can live secure in friendship, competing only in the arts and sports of peace. And men of all nations can sing together as they sang on that brilliant summer afternoon in August 1948 at the opening of the Olympic Games in London. Side 10 of the Sounds of Time ending this podcast. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next time, this is 78 Man saying goodbye and keep spinning that shellac. <laughs>